Welcome to episode number 78 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about another case study. This one is a grain dust explosion in a milling facility. And to do that, we have on the call Dr. Suzanne Smith, Managing Engineer with Exponents Thermal Sciences Practice based in Chicago, Illinois. Susie, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, I appreciate the invite. Excellent. So Susie has a bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in mechanical engineering. Her doctoral research was focused on fluid flow and combustion applications, so um, similar in, in a lot of ways to the kind of research I did for my thesis, which uh, I was excited to see. Uh, she is a professional engineer, certified fire investigator, and a certified vehicle fire investigator. And her industry experience is really specializing specifically in incident investigation within uh, exponents thermal sciences practice. So this case study that we're covering today is, again, focused on a grain dust explosion at a milling facility and the lessons that were learned there. And this is a, a wheat milling facility. This has been published um, by Suzanne and her teammates at Exponent, Brenton Cox, Todd Hedrick, and Dr. Russell Ogle, who we've had on the podcast before. It's published under the title Lessons Learned from a Milling Explosion in the Journal of Loss Prevention in the Process Industries um, in 2019. So this is volume 62, uh, page 103928. And I don't think that's a page number, but that's the identifier they have on the paper. So if you're looking for it, you can find it there. The reason I liked this case study in terms of um, the, the lessons learned is that it's not your typical one that we talk about a lot with a primary and a secondary explosion in the future of dust. There actually was no, and, and Suzanne can talk about this and will, there was no explosive level accumulations of future of dust in the facility. This was something that happened fully in the processing equipment um, led to the explosion. So I think it's important to talk about that as another way that these, uh, these large scale explosions can happen. So, Susie, maybe a good place to start is just what is your role exponent? What kind of what type of work do you typically focus on? Yeah, so as you mentioned, most of my work is in what I'll call the reactive area. So after an incident or something has happened is usually when I get involved, and so that can be incidents related to fire, explosion, other uh, thermal incidents in areas ranging from industrial facilities all the way down to residential settings. So for facilities, industrial facilities, those incidents tend to be explosions that I get involved in, and that can be combustible dust, flammable gases. Some I've had some cryogenic liquid expansion issues, uh, steam and spoke explosions, whereas some of the smaller smaller being a very relative term here, but uh, smaller cases for equipment uh, tends to be fires. And so that's more agricultural equipment, mining equipment, construction equipment, that type of thing. Some uh, industrial air equipment like compressors or pumps. And then the other thermal area uh, is a lot of kind of pressure and heat related equipment. So hydraulic failures, pneumatic system failures, frozen pipes, heaters, dryers, things that go wrong with things that involve heat and fluid. <laughs> so that's pretty much what I do. Sure. What what kind of, in terms of the combustible dust side, what sort of industries are you you're working in when you're doing your investigations? So it, it varies pretty widely. So this one obviously is in the kind of agricultural processing industry, and I've done a few others 
in that space. I've also had some metal powder issues, wood dust, and kind of the paper and pulp industries. It's all over the board. It, it depends who uh, who has the incident when. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, like you said, it's really a response, a reactive or response-driven thing to bring out a team and investigate your processing operation upset or your your explosion or your fire. Uh, I I was really interested when I read through this case study um, that that you published through the Journal of Loss Prevention, the Process Industries, and maybe I'll let you describe in your own words why. When, when you did this investigation, why do you think it was pertinent to, to publish it out to the wider community? Well, I think you hit on uh, the big point earlier. It's There's a lot of focus in the combustible dust industry on these uh, secondary explosions involving fugitive dust and housekeeping. So there's, you know, the USB or excuse me, the USCSB call to action. There's national emphasis program with OSHA. There's a lot of focus both in most industries on housekeeping and keeping fugitive dust out of these facilities. And we thought that this incident was really notable in that there was a lot of damage, but there wasn't evidence of fugitive dust. So while fugitive dust is important and can certainly cause large secondary explosions that result in uh, significant damage. This was not one of those instances. So it was interesting in that we were able to get these high levels of damage without any additional explosions outside the equipment. And I wanted to pause there a little bit. When I, I spoke about this same case study at the International Symposium on Hazards Prevention and Mitigation of Industrial Explosions, and there was a little bit of question about what we meant by secondary explosion. So here we're really, we really mean outside of the equipment involving fugitive dust when we say there was no secondary explosions. We're not talking about multiple uh, propagation of flame or a secondary ignition in the system of equipment. So I wanted to make that, um, to contrast those two. So I know some people have different variations on what they define as secondary explosion. So here, we really mean outside of the of the equipment system. Yeah, and I caught myself even in the intro. I said doesn't involve a secondary explosion. That wasn't quite what I meant. It doesn't involve flame propagation outside of the equipment. But it is it is a hard one. People and at some of these conferences, people might be nitpicky on details that are are not the the utmost importance. But in a lot of cases, you have a sequence. So you have a primary explosion followed by something happens after, um, or that flame propagates from location A to location B to location C. In this case, that was all inside of equipment until equipment failure happened and then building failure happened. In other cases, that may lead to igniting the, the fugitive dust. So it's, it is an important distinction. I cannot really recommend a better classification other than, say, these things usually happen in a sequence <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure I I'm fine with you calling it a secondary explosion in the processing equipment. <laughs> yeah. I think as long as we all know what we're talking about, then what the actual words we use are probably less important. Yeah. And I will note, so we're, this is an audio podcast. You're probably listening in your car or on your commute. So you don't have access to the images, but the the paper um, that we'll include a link to in the show notes, it has the images from the the event and I'll describe them a bit. It's, three or four story building with the entire corner wall segment blown out from the explosions and then some of the processing equipment um, blown out from there as well. So it is, it is 
um, pretty large amount of destruction for not having an external secondary explosion in the fugitive dust. Um, and it's certainly enough to to injure workers um, severely because, it, you know, it's it wasn't a quote-unquote small explosion. So maybe just taking a step back from what happened, can you describe the processing operations that were used at this facility a bit to lay the land for the, the listener? Sure. As you mentioned, it was a wheat milling operation. And so in this section of the building, the building's actually quite a bit bigger than you can see in the photos and goes back a ways. But in this kind of third of the, the building here, there was two lines that milled wheat. And so we focused really on the areas of the milling process that were affected by the explosion. And that's everything that was downstream of cleaning and tempering. So there was not really cleaning and tempering happening in this part. But the um, tempered wheat would come in. It could be diverted into two different lines here. And then it would make its way into first a set of roller mills. So there was, uh, I think, four different roller mills that the wheat could be diverted to. And as well as a hammer mill and an attrition mill. So typically... This area and the two different mill lines, they produced a whole variety of grades of flour, sizes of flour. And so they had a lot of ability to change the routing. So there's a lot of manual slide gates, diverter valves. They could divert things to various pieces of equipment depending on what specific product they were making. So that was a difficult part in the investigation is trying to understand how was this set up? right before the incident and how could it have been set up, you know, in the past. But so you have these six different mills. Typically they only use the hammer mill or the attrition mill. They didn't often use both of them to make the same type of flour, but we've got those mills. They uh, each had their own cyclone up on the roof. And then the, products would come down into a single sifter. Well, each line had its own sifter, but um, a single sifter that would then size the particles and divert them either back into the process or into the finished product hoppers in the basement. There was a large filter that pulled off the cyclones on the roof, and that was the same filter for all the cyclones for each of the six mills and also the finished product hopper. And then there was a different filter that pulled off from the kind of inlet temper bin area. And uh, like I mentioned, they could route things all over the place depending on what specific product they were making. And all of those controls for diverting the flow we're all manual. So slide gates and diverter valves. Um, Certainly the motors on the mills and that type of thing had a more complicated control panel system, but everything else as far as controlling flow was manual. Just for the folks that aren't um, typically working in these operations, maybe in in another industry, why would they be using different configurations of mills to get different products? So like, what are they trying to achieve there? I think it depends partially on what part of the wheat grain they're focusing on. So what perhaps protein content or 
specific content of the flower they were aiming for, as well as size. So they could make various uh, particle sizes of flower depending on what product they wanted. And so they would use the attrition mill specifically when they wanted a very fine flower uh, that would get them to the lowest particle sizes they could. That makes sense. And then the hammer mill would be sort of intermediate and the roller mills would be the, the coarse crushing of the, the raw material coming in. Right. Okay. Right. I like, to, I like to cover that because when I read these papers, I always learn a little bit more about the processes myself. And I want to make sure that the audience is getting that too. So we have, we have a, a system where you have uh, multiple lines coming in, um, going to a series of different mills uh, that all do different size grinding. And also, depending on the configured, you might get a different part of the, the grain out. I'm not going to remember the parts of the grain, but there's the germ and there's the, and yeah, there's some different parts that you, you may want for, for different parts. <laughs> So you have the roller mills, um, cyclones are feeding each of the mills and you have an aspiration system or a filter system pulling off all of the cyclones as well. From your investigation, what, what happened the, the day of the incident? What caused it to uh, occur and, and sort of how the, the incident sequence, if that's what we want to call it, uh, happened? Yeah, so it actually started the night before the incident. So there was a problem with the attrition mill. So the miller who was on duty the night before uh, heard belt squealing uh, on the attrition mill and determined that it had choked. So he began the process of clearing the choke and cleaning out the attrition mill. So he shut down the line, he opened it up, uh, is clearing out the material, and that's when the shift changed. So he left, new miller came in, continued with the cleaning process, um, and when he determined that it was cleaned sufficiently, he reassembled everything, all the ducts, and went to turn the attrition mill back on. And at that time, they, someone else saw a flame uh, traveling up the chute from the attrition mill through a sight glass that was on the first floor. So he saw this flame shoot up towards the ceiling, going up towards the cyclones. And immediately heard the explosion. So previously, they had had some issues with finding evidence of combustion in the attrition mill. So when it would get choked, it's imparting, it's spinning very fast. It's a very beefy piece of equipment. It can impart a lot of mechanical energy into the grain and even more so when the grain's not flowing through. So it just keeps getting heated up. And they had mentioned indications, you know, smelling an odor of burning. They had seen some discoloration. I don't recall if they saw specifically glowing or smolders, but they, they saw things that could indicate that heat was being transferred into the, the grain here. And the other thing is... This attrition mill is big and bulky and incredibly difficult to take apart. So you need a hoist. It's too big to take apart just with one man. And it's a little bit difficult to clean. So given that we saw or we had this indication of flame moving up through the chute from the attrition mill that uh, and where there had been a problem earlier, we are uh, a possibility is that they didn't get 
to a hot spot, you know, that there was a smolder or a, an ember or something in that attrition mill that didn't get cleaned out. And then when they energized it back and allowed fresh air to flow over it, that uh, ember could get conveyed up into the cyclone and eventually the filter system. So we saw uh, discoloration on the sifter itself. There was actually some charring on the sifter. We saw uh, discoloration on the filter, the filter system. We saw it on two of the cyclones, the attrition mill cyclone and one of the roller mill cyclones. And there was charred material in a couple of these locations as well. There was some charred material product, charred product we found in the attrition mill cyclone, in the filter, and in the cleaning house filter, actually, which draws off kind of the inlet bin. The distance between the attrition mill and the filter was quite significant. So the attrition mill was located in the basement of this building. And the cyclone is on the, the roof. So you've got four, five, five, five stories of chutes straight up for this flame to propagate in. Then you've got kind of the width of the building between all the different cyclones. Then it comes back down. The filter is sitting between the, is like spanning the third floor. So it's kind of between the second and third floors. And so it's got to come down another two, three stories from the cyclones. So there's quite a bit of distance where this flame was able to propagate and speed up <laughs> and kick up some more dust as, as it made its way. Yeah, so we're talking several hundred or at least a couple hundred feet to get up over and kind of back through the ducting. And then it can be accelerating and through that ducting and speeding up as the explosion's happening. Yeah, and then the, the, the filter itself had explo an explosion vent on it, and it was positioned right at the exterior wall. So the vent only had to go less than five feet of straight duct right outside. And it was sized appropriately based on, on the codes. But the other damage we saw to the filter was that the inspection door, which faced kind of inward into the interior as you would, where you'd put an inspection door that was blown off. So it had broken both of the uh, cross members that held the door closed. And there was evidence of flame that had kind of shot out that inspection door as well. There was a lot of charring on the floor around there. And that's where one of the workers was working at the time and it was injured during the incident. He sustained burns, but he was able to get himself out and eventually return back to work. So better than it could have been. I'm going to try to take a shot summarizing kind of the, the, the incident sequence. And then you can tell me if I'm missing anything because it was quite, quite dynamic. And it is, like you said, hard to reconstruct these when, when it's set up for multiple configurations and, valves and gates may be gone <laughs> so it's hard to tell which which one so you have to look at the the charring and the, the flame path to figure it out um, so we had a um, embers in the attrition mill from the night before potentially as the ignition source when the attrition mill was turned back on those can get sucked into the system ignite 
uh, combustible dust in that system. And then the flame propagate through the equipment up to the cyclone uh, and then back out through into the dust collection system, um, into the dust collector, into the bag hose. The bag hose was, or the dust collector had explosion venting on it, which was sized for an explosion in the dust collector, but not necessarily an accelerated pre-pressurized. And we'll probably get into that in a second explosion in the dust collector. Um, so then any other, it, it's um, horrendous that the individual was injured, uh, but they could maybe be considered lucky that they had the the door come off. Because if not, you would have had maybe another, you know, if it was built really strong, the dust collector, you may have had a catastrophic failure that would have took out more than that did. From your investigation, did it look like the paneling and walls, the the pressure um, damage was from the, the explosion uh, ejecting out of the inspection door? Yeah, that was really the the main area we saw that the pressure relieved indoors. So most of the damage is kind of centered around that filter uh, and that inspection door. If you are looking at the photos, that filter's kind of at the on the I don't know my directions anymore, but on the left side of the building there, right at the bottom that you can see over that um there's a little awning there for the train unloading area. So you can see the floors kind of collapsing down towards that, that one filter. And if you look really close <laughs> and zoom in, you can see there's some charring on the wood members around that as well. Okay. And, and do you have any hypothesis on why, um, why the venting wasn't sufficient in the dust collector to properly vent outside? Well, I think, I think you hit on it earlier as well. It, you know, it's sized for an event in the filter. And so when you have the event away from the filter and you can allow the, the propagation to speed up, increase turbulence, increase pressure as it's traveling towards this filter, then your initial pressure, if you're doing the calculation in that filter, is going to be higher than normal, which is going to result eventually in a much higher final pressure after all the dust within the filter can can get involved so that was is why even though the explosion venting was up to code and sized appropriately that was unable to fully vent this incident because it wasn't sized for this incident um and i think we'll we'll talk about that in in a moment on you know, what would the recommendation be? But I do, I, so I want to, I just want to highlight a couple things on that flame acceleration in the ducting. So there's a couple of things that contribute. You have this pre-pressurization in the end vessel as the flame's propagating, the whole system's pressurizing. So when you have that explosion in the dust collector, it's not at 101, 325 pascals. It's at two or three or four or five atmospheres before fuel is ignited or combustible dust ignited in that dust collector. So you have pre-pressurization, but you also have turbulence being generated throughout the ducting. Uh, They're not smooth walls, and if they were, you still would get some feedback mechanisms that are enhancing the the burning, enhancing the flame uh, propagation. So if you're measuring this, and and they do do this in controlled tests, you know, a dust explosion in a dust collector might be traveling, I'm going to say, maybe between a meter and 20 meters a second. Um, This flame, by the time it got through 200, 300, 400 feet of ducting, it might have been traveling, you know, a couple hundred meters a second. Um, very, very much more aggressive explosion. 
so that's those are kind of the mechanisms that go into uh, this um, flame acceleration and ducting. Are there any recommendations? I mean, the the obvious one seems to be isolation, but can you talk around why maybe that wasn't present and and what you guys found through that? Yeah, so isolation's great. You know, there was rotary valves at the bottom of each cyclone. There's other ways to kind of separate these pieces of equipment, but we found, especially in food processing industries, a lot of the isolation or suppression technology it's a difficult choice. There's a lot of challenges associated with figuring out what's most appropriate. You know, chemicals, having a chemical suppressant enter into the food stream is not ideal. Even water can be really difficult and help cause mold issues. So there's a lot of various choices to be made in that area. So I think the, the big takeaway here is looking for ways, especially when isolation is really difficult, is looking for ways to minimize the likelihood of ignition events. So there was no way really present in this place to alert the miller of a flow blockage, other than during his routine checks, you know, he heard these belts whining, that was his indication that something was wrong. So having some sort of flow or pressure sensors around to indicate when there is a flow blockage can help alert the operators to a situation where the mills may be inputting too much heat to the product. So if I back that up a little bit, these attrition mills and hammer mills in specific, uh, less so with roller, though the potential is still there. If they're blocked and they're kind of re-milling <laughs> the same grain over and over, they're able to impart a lot of energy. And when they're blocked, you know, the attrition mill works on shear forces to start with. So it's already importing, imparting a lot of energy. And if it's blocked and that energy is kind of allowed to keep being inputted to the same, same grain, you can get the grain very hot. And that is an ignition, a potential for ignition, whether that's a smolder or something larger. And same with the hammer mill. You know, it's, it starts off as more of an impact force as the hammers swing around and break the grain open. But if you block that and choke it, now you're getting more into shear because the, the interior of the mill is filling up and you're putting a lot more energy in there. So that's also a risk as you add that energy that the grain's getting too hot and could lead to an ignition. So I think recognizing kind of the severity of flow blockages and that it's not just impacting production, that it's potentially a safety concern, a potential route for ignition. I think that's important. And that when operators may observe flow blockages or smell an odor of, you know, potentially fire or combustion or just grain that's too hot, that they uh, recognize that that is a bigger deal than, than they may have before. Yeah, that makes sense. And I had in my notes when I read the paper written on the back, 
and this isn't really an estimatable quantity, but how many times had ignition occurred without causing an explosion um, in the lifetime of that that device? And you may know the answer by um, by ask you know talking to the operators, and they may say that's something that happens twice a year, or that's you know our our Friday lunch bell once a week, or or you know that's uh, something that happens every day. We have a smell. We and you can use your five senses, right? You can smell. You can hear. Dust is hard to ignite, and we know this from from testing. If you're if you're under laboratory conditions and you're trying to ignite the, the material, even if it's in a you know a simple geometry, simpler in the twenty liter chamber, it you got to disperse it pretty well to get it to ignite. But that's even more dangerous. That means that you can have a hundred different ignition times. And it's a hundred and once that um, caused the explosion. So when in this case where we had the the combustion in the hammer mill it could have caused the explosion right away the night that the blockage happened. I think it probably couldn't have because things were choked. So he didn't have any flow really going through. So he's had too much fuel in there anyway. And it was really then that startup procedure after the choke that uh, caused the the explosion mm-hmm. here. But that was the question I had for you is, is when you talked with the team there, was this pretty common that they would have a, you know, a fire combustion or, or kind of smell com- combustion um, happening or indications that there were these things happening? You know, I don't think I can put a real number on it. It was enough that we learned that it wasn't, I'll say, uncommon. You know, the, the, and I think part of the issue was that a little discoloration, a little smell weren't seen as a big problem. You know, they know these are big machines that are spinning real fast. Of course, things get a little hot. And I think the big lesson here is the, to recognize that these flow blockages can lead to more severe events. And so taking apart this attrition mill was not simple. It was a lot of work and there's a lot of areas that are really difficult to get to. You know, when there was evidence you could see on, on many of the locations, which I'm sure you're not unfamiliar with, where the first thing you do is if there's a blockage is you hit it with a hammer and you're trying to get rid of the blockage without having to open it up. And so I think having this understanding that flow blockage can lead to heat, which can then lead to ignition, which then could lead to an incident is, is the, big, the big takeaway. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And we can't get anything else out of this episode but that. I think it's important. And and also, it's not just... So fugitive dust and housekeeping are very critical components. I do sometimes hear people say they're the only component. Um, and that's just that's not the case. There was no fugitive dust in this case. And fortunately, the individual that was injured was able to come back to work in that. But it could have been much, much worse. And like I said, if that... If that uh, they didn't have an inspection door on that dust collector. The inspection door was a lot uh, stronger than, you know, you could end up with with a lot larger. The, the explosion doesn't care. It's going to keep happening until it finds a failure point. So if you have a really strong vessel, but it's not strong to contain the whole explosion, then you're going to have a, a very large rupture at the end of the day. So it's it's very scary, these things. And the point of try make is, yeah, it, you do have to worry about the explosions inside the equipment as well and this isolation and I really like the point on on choking and blockages and them not just because they happen pretty often and they might seem simple or unimportant, but 
there is a lot of cases where things like this can happen afterwards. I want to ask you on the isolation side, say if they had a material that that was ignition sensitive, more ignition sensitive than what they're using, you know, what recommendations do we have for isolation? Because the recommendation here was kind of to look for different ways to, to um, remove the ignition sources. They did have, I think, um, magnetic separators and, and things in, in place. So they had some ignition source control. But if that wasn't an option, are there any recommendations for these grain ducts? Because the issues are the ducts are pretty flimsy, right? Right. They're, they were very, the, the spouts were all very thin. Um, so in most locations, they wouldn't really be able to, as, as installed at least, support much additional equipment uh, attached on them. I think the, the challenges with isolation are going to be different for every single facility. So I don't know that I have a great recommendation that kind of blankets everyone and is a magic bullet to help, to help solve this problem. But there's a number of different suppression and isolation options out there, but they're each so specialized and so specific to the industry that it's hard to, uh, to give much more recommendation than that. No, that makes sense. Um, and I did want to kind of wind off and maybe this is where we'll, we'll, uh, we'll head towards the end of this, this interview is, um, were there any other lessons learned? So we talked about the fugitive dust. We talked about the choking and how that can be a major ignition source. Um, we talked about isolation and, and, um, some ways, you know, some important things to consider there. Were there other things that you found from this uh, investigation that people should know? Um, I think one finding that happens in almost every incident I'm involved at is communication. So, you know, this incident did span over a shift change. And so I, I think the, the communication between the two millers on duty and this situation was not bad. You know, that he knew that there was a clog, he knew he had to finish cleaning and put it back together. And so that's not, not that um, severe. But I think so many incidents involve a shift change or some sort of miscommunication between various sex uh, roles in the plant. You know, if the maintenance crew isn't telling the operator that they keep finding, you know, little pieces of charcoal <laughs> coming out the bottom of their bins, or, you know, I, I think every facility I've been into could stand to improve their communication, whether that's communication of near misses, you know, understanding that there's been heating of product before, or maybe the first miller or the second miller thought that the first miller cleaned out this hard to reach part of the attrition mill and he hadn't. Not that there's specific evidence of that here, but I think it's just a good reminder that I've seen in almost every single incident I've been to. And I would put an asterisk beside that because, because as far as, far as uh, people who have, have investigated these sort of things, I would put Susie up there with somebody who's investigated, uh, you know, a lot more than, more than most uh, folks in our, our industry. So it's important. And the other thing I'd so say is that in this time where we were recording this, it's uh, late April, 2020, we're in the middle of, of uh, COVID-19 and, and both Susie and I are recording this from our, our separate um, houses. There's going to be a lot of processes that are starting up. So communication is, is one part ongoing, but there's going to be a lot of processes that are shut down right now that are going to be starting up in the upcoming months. And I'm a bit worried 
that we will see an, an uptick in, in incidents um, as those processes start coming back online because of things like this. Or do you have any just any thoughts on on what people might be thinking about as they start to start their processes back up? I know it's a big question for. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of information out there, procedures that have been written on startup checklists to go through. And I think it's just important to go back to those and to treat it like a true startup, not just we have to turn everything back on, but to actually go through the checklist, go through the procedures, think about, think ahead about what each piece of equipment is going to be doing. And most of that is already built in to these facilities. You know, this is hopefully not the only time they've started up, but I think it's a really smart, a good reminder that a lot of these incidents do happen during startup or shutdown or process upsets. And so it's especially now when places may be shut down unexpectedly that the startups are done in a really thoughtful and systematic <laughs> and logical way. Well, and that, and I just thought, you know, maybe reduce team too, if you're, you know, if you can't uh, uh, financially have all your, your normal team there, you want to make sure that you're, you're still starting things up safe. There's a lot of considerations there. We actually have, uh, it will probably come out in two weeks from now, an interview scheduled on process startup and shutdown, how that might how to consider that for for this current pandemic that we're in. So that will come out in a couple of weeks if you're listening to this live, and they'll come out in a couple of weeks after that. Um, but it's a, it's a really important topic, um, and and so is this whole you know this whole interview on lessons learned from the screen milling explosion. I want to just give you an opportunity, Susie. Is there any other closing thoughts you think might be good for the listeners to to hear in relation to this or in relation to your work more broadly? Not in particular. I would I would echo the communication. I think. Having an open line between all the operators, the maintenance staff, the management to express any of the concerns, any of their observations they may have that can help kind of catch something early, I think is always a a great idea. That's great. And I want to say thank you again. I appreciate you coming on and sharing um, this, uh, this incident investigation. And also, I hope to get you on in the future to hopefully not talk about more incident investigations, but to get more of your knowledge shared out with the community. Yeah, thanks. It's It's been a, a, a fun time. I've enjoyed our, our chat here. Excellent. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Dr. Suzanne Smith, Managing Engineer at Exponent and works with their thermal sciences practice. So Suzanne's background, as we mentioned, covers a broad range of combustion applications, fluid flow applications, and incident investigation. In this episode, we covered a grain dust explosion in a milling facility. So as a, a wheat milling facility, it had multiple different configurations for grinding and milling of the wheat. Uh, and Suzanne and her team did the investigation and published this in the open literature. It's titled Lessons Learned from a Milling Explosion. It's in the Journal of Loss Prevention the Process Industries. And we'll have links to this article through the publisher's website, dustsafetyscience.com slash 78. So we covered a lot of important topics here. We covered, it's not just fugitive dust that's a problem. You can also have explosions inside equipment that stay inside the equipment until they, they don't. In this case, you had a, a jet fire that came out of the, the inspection hatch. But the most of the explosion happened inside the equipment, and it wasn't this kind of large, massive secondary explosion that was the issue. So you do need to protect against that. Uh, we talked about venting. You can have a case where you're, you're designing your vents for one piece of equipment, but you need to consider whether or not 
you know, there's things like isolation that also need to be needed that also need to be done there as well. I do need to apologize. I did say it was during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think you might be able to hear my son babbling in the background. He's, he likes to be on the podcast as well. We talked about isolation, about difficulties in some of these grain handling industries, um, especially if you don't have strong ducting. So what the options might be there, maybe there's some kind of chemical suppression option that might be there, but then you also need to think about food safety and whether or not you can get that cleaned up in order to to have a safe product after you, you protect it from the explosion as well. Uh, we talked about ignition sources. In this case, the ignition source was most likely from choking of the nutrition mill. And uh, when that was cleared and then turned back on, leftover embers are thought to ignite the, the dust there. So that's you know, critical importance. And then we, we closed off with this communication aspect, communicating between floor workers that, you know, there's something that's happened, communicating near misses. This, those choked legs or choked blockages and ignition, those should be considered a near miss. If you, if you read this um, instant investigation and see how, how fast it escalated, each one of those wasn't a near miss. And if they had been dressed earlier, maybe we wouldn't have, have had this large explosion at the end of the day. Uh, so we, you know, covered a lot of ground here. And I just want to say thank you again to Suzanne. We'll have a way to contact her on um, the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 78. We've been getting a lot of great feedback on these case study episodes. We covered them in 69, 71, 74, and then this episode, 78. If you go to dustsafetyscience.com slash that number, you can get access to that uh, episode there. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I hope everyone's still coping all right with, uh, you know, the, the lockdown that's going on and um, all things that are happening in the world. And I also want to say I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, uh, making them safer every day and every week. 